step back from that. It's all right, you don't need two mics. Okay. I don't know, maybe you do. <laughs> all right, I'm going to pray for Clive um, okay. before, I, before I turn him loose. <laughs> Lord Jesus, we do just, um, Lord, thank you for this man. Um, Lord, thank you for the rich spiritual deposit um, that you've placed inside of him. Lord, thank you for the wonderful gift that he is, um, not just to us, but to the church wider. Um, And Lord, we just pray that as he opens your word, Lord, I pray you would give us soft hearts, um, supple hearts, Lord, to hear your word and to sit under your word and submit ourselves to it. Lord, that we would be challenged, that we would be convicted, that we would be changed this morning as a result of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Rich. Thank you. Well, you're such a super fit church. I thought I'd be speaking to no one this morning. You'd all be down running on the embankment by now. And uh, so you're not at the London Marathon. Some of us are. No, well done. It's great to be back. Can I call you my little pigeon droppings? I have used that term of endearment with you before. It's It's a French term of endearment. If you believe that, you believe anything. Would you prefer me to call you my tripe sausages or something? You know, what would you like me to call you? But no, I'm just making it all up as I go along. Um, it's great to be back, and um, I've got a, s- a stonkingly amazing chapter of your Song of Songs series. Oh my goodness me, I have been listening to the previous uh, preaching, it's been wonderful, but I, I missed last week's, which I believe was wedding preparations, if I'm not much mistaken. But man, we are coming to the heart of the song in more ways than one now, so we're going to look at the whole of chapter four. And I don't think we've got it on screen behind us. So if you've got a Bible with you, it's going to help today. So if you check, I'm not going to look at people who haven't got Bibles. Relax. It's okay. It's all right. I just have to listen up. So Song of Songs, chapter four. But I'm also going to um, do a little bit of chapter five because I think there's an artificial division here. I think that chapter five, verse one is has to be included with uh, chapter four you will see why if you haven't already uh, gathered and been reading ahead of me so let's just pray for a bit of assistance oh lord help (laughs) amen right so it's one of those chapters where you feel you need that sort of help it's a beautiful chapter man it don't pull no punches so this is this is gonna be a ride okay okay here we go and I'm going to read it with, you know, the passion that it deserves because this is passionate. So we ain't going to duck this, are we? I mean, you're well into this series now. So, so we're going to go where angels actually do go, but uh, where God fears to tread. It's amazing. What a God we have. You find this stuff opens up in the middle of your Bible. What is this doing here in the Bible? Okay, let's read it. So this is the husband to his wife. They're newly married. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate and your neck is like the Tower of David built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense 
all beautiful are you, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Senir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's den and the mountain haunts of the leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are like an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. The Song of Songs holds nothing back. It's singing here. Can you hear it singing? This is a song. This is singing about the holy practice of sexuality within a loving marriage. And it pushes us into a necessary conversation together. A right and appropriate and godly conversation about deepest theology. Because not just is it about human sexuality, it's also about God's heart for us as we've been experiencing this last few weeks. It's about communion. And it's about that word which has a sexual overtone but has a far bigger application. The word consummation. And we're going to talk a bit about that a bit later. But chapter four is a love feast. It's erotic. It's passionate and there is not a hint of crudeness or lust or lewdness in it at all. It is beautiful. It's innocent. It's nothing like the way the world would throw and bombard sex at you. This is innocent eros. We need to say that right at the start because what does the world do with this exquisite gift that God has given us? It bombards us. I mean, you just, you know, even safe search engines are not really safe, are they? So, you know, as well as I do, that there are fully naked images everywhere. And as one commentator put this as I was preparing for today, the world would say this, show everything to everyone. And you can think of certain scurrilous programs. I don't even want to mention that are on primetime TV where everything is shown. You know the sort of thing I'm talking about? There's no sacredness attached to so many of the things that you see coming at you through the screens that we uh, have to be so wise about uh, using. There's a lack of shame of what's being viewed 
Um, And it's not just a show everything world that we've got to navigate our way through. It's also openly a talk it, talk it, talk it, talk it, tell about it, talk about it, tell all, gossip it, get get talking in all sorts of forums and chat shows and real housewives of type programs and reality shows where people talk openly about their most intimate secrets. You think, man, we've got show all and we've got tell all world that we have got to find our way through. You've got the lurid details coming at you. Um, gossips about you know who's with who you've got the the tabloids picking up on it the latest kind of um, uh, ways in which we can shame or name or, or or luridly vicariously live off such details that we should never be privy to and this kind of lack of being shocked anymore by this brazen lack of shame And this loss of the sense of the sacredness and the privacy surrounding this most intimate aspect of our lives. And then we come to chapter four. And we've just read something openly so powerful that is so different and yet on the same subject. So the glory of the words that we've just read are this, in essence, let's spell it out in case you didn't see the allegories or the imagery. This is the bridegroom gazing upon his wife's physical body and she is beautiful to him and she has a happy response to him. So instead of show all, tell all that the world says, we've got something slightly different. We've got husbands saying, my wife, reveal your beauty to me. Show me your beauty. And the husband will then tell the wife no one else he will say wife you are altogether beautiful so it's show him tell her you with me the difference between what the world does and what this sacred chapter in the song of songs is doing so there's an intimacy just between the husband and wife which is private for them now we do know that the 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 woman has kept herself just for him so Uh, She is a virgin, but here she is before him in chapter four, wearing very little, not much more than a smile. So if you actually look at what she's wearing in chapter four, she is wearing a veil. This would be a translucent, uh, an opaque veil, which would be making her all the more alluring. So she'd be having a wedding veil. He could see through to her beautiful face. She'd be, she's, so verse one, she's wearing a veil. Verse nine, she's wearing a necklace. We know that much because he talks about one jewel of her necklace. And, um, and the other thing she's wearing is her hair. And in verse one, her long, dark hair is let down, which isn't just erotic. It's actually uh, part of her glory. She is the glory of the man. And if I wanted to get sidetracked here, we're, and it's interesting this afternoon you're going on into uh, men and women. I mean, I'm your pre-foundation talk. You've got a foundational talk coming up this afternoon. But the woman is the glory here of the man. And it's, that's profound theology. He is incomplete. She is his glory. He, ha- he has not got that glory. That unless she gives him that glory, he has. And her hair is part of that. Um, and I'm not making a comment about short or long hair. This, at this point in this culture, this was, this was working. This is what Spurgeon said about this, uh, this woman standing naked before her husband. Spurgeon says this, 
This is a symbolic demonstration of perfect honesty. She's got nothing to hide, <laughs> literally. Perfect trust. She trusts him when she's naked before him. Perfect giving and commitment. She is there before him, unclothed and unashamed. What does that remind you of? Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve in the garden, and they were naked and unashamed. There are echoes of the Garden of Eden right here in the Song of Songs. And Adam's wow in the garden when Eve is brought to him. God's girls, come on, you, you, let's, let's say this. You are God's beautiful final flourish of creation activity. Eve is the last one to be created in the garden. And no wonder Adam then says, whoa, here is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The wow factor that echoes from Genesis 2 comes right here to Song of Songs chapter 4. No wonder he says, you are beautiful. Twice he says it. And he, as he gazes upon her, he is taken up with the glory of her physical body. And he says... There is no flaw in you. Now we're beginning to move our ship into deeper waters. He says there is no flaw in you. Now, I wonder if that gives you an echo of another scripture further on into the New Testament. Hang on a minute. Let's just consider what uh, the bridegroom says to the bride. He says there's no flaw in you. But actually, she didn't think so. So let's just have a little bit of a rain check there. She actually has given herself fairly negative reviews a little earlier on. If you remember back in chapter one, she's saying, look, I've been out in the sun. Don't stare at me. You know, don't, no, don't, don't. She's not confident in the first chapter. She's not sure of how uh, this is going to work. She's just been, she just got married. She's learning to be the wife confident in her husband's love. And uh, she's caught the sun because her brother's, have been mean to her. They've pushed her outside to work. She's done hard, physical, manual work. She's unhappy with her appearance. This is a little bit of a Cinderella story. You know, the, the cin- yeah, Cinderella, come on. Do you know Cinderella? It's a great story, isn't it? Well, that, this story is about Cinderella. So, so <laughs> I love the immediacy. You get that, you get that. In, in, in good churches, you get the reaction. This Cinderella story means this. There's a lovely young girl in the Cinderella story and she is forced to do hard labour by her cruel sisters, isn't she? Well, here you've got brothers who've pushed this lovely girl out into the fierce Mediterranean sun and they, she's got to work a vineyard. Now, if you know, and there's a vineyard just been planted near me in a little village called Alfriston next to Eastbourne and it's called the Rathfinney Estate and it's aiming to be Britain's number one producer of English sparkling wine because of global warning, warming. Um, it's better to grow Chardonnay grapes and uh, grapes and things and, um, in southern England than northern France. I won't get, don't let me get sidetracked by one of my favourite subjects. Uh, basically, um, so a vineyard, you've got to get rid of the boulders. You've got to build a wine vat. You've got to build a tower to keep thieves from coming and nicking your grapes. You've got to chase out the foxes. You've got to... Um, you've got to dig ditches. You've got to plant vines. You've got to work really hard. This girl has been doing that. So these brothers may have protected her virginity, but they didn't exactly protect her from uh, being affected by hard physical labor. And so she says, I'm dark, affected by the sun. And there isn't a hint of racial overtones here. Let's just say that straight away. 
because the elite women in Solomon's court would have been pale because they wouldn't have been doing hard manual labor. And so if you were slender because the weight's dropping off you because you're working so hard and you're dark, it probably meant you were doing manual labor. And so there's this lovely girl who is saying, actually, they, my brothers made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard, that's chapter one, I have not kept. So she hasn't had time to attend to herself. She hasn't really been able to have time to make herself as attractive as possible. And so what does she call herself? She calls herself in uh, chapter two, I am a rose of Sharon a lily of the valleys. And so that sounds nice, doesn't it? That sounds beautiful. A rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Until you realise that actually she is comparing herself to what would have been throughout the Holy Land, a countryside wildflower. Lily of the valley. French muguet. The fleur de lys. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's just a lovely countryside wildflower so it's pretty but as one commentator puts it pretty common so not common vulgar common but quite common it's just a humble beautiful wayside flower remember remember what jesus says you know not even king solomon in all his glory was clothed like these flowers of the field so she's she's lovely but she's not by her own admission she's saying i'm comparing myself to a wayside flower so she's not oversensitive about her looks. She does call herself, I am dark but lovely. She, she, she knows she's like a, a natural beauty, but, but there is a natural beauty about her. She's got a realistic self-assessment. And this is what's so great about her. So she's not got an overly high assessment of, man, you know, drop, I'm drop-dead gorgeous. She gets it right. She knows that she brings a beauty to the man. Now, why do I go through all that as an explanation? Because what, oh, what does the beloved say about her? That's what she says about herself. I'm, look, I'm a lily of the valley. I'm a wayside flower. But what does he say about her? And that's the important bit. And we'll come to why in a few moments. Okay, he says, you're a lily, but lilies are uncommonly beautiful you may be a common wayside flower but you are uncommonly beautiful to me so he she says she's a lily among thorns and so what does that mean she's uh, um sorry the, the 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 husband is saying you are a lily among thorns so he's saying okay you're a lily i get that point but actually you're the only one i want to look at so lily among thorns to me means I've just got eyes for you. It's a bit of a bond theme for your eyes only. OK, I just want to look at you. And um, obviously, as flowers open to the sunshine, to the warmth of the affection of the rays of the sun. So this woman opens to him. And this is what this chapter is all about. Her confidence will grow from chapter one to the end of chapter four, the beginning of chapter five, where there is consummation, sexual intercourse, the union of man and woman. It's in what we've just read. Now, why are we taking our time over this? Why are we into deeper waters? Well, remember, she didn't think she was a perfect 10, 
she isn't unaware of her imperfections, but he is. He is completely blind to her imperfections. And this is where it gets really exciting. Because it's about you and the way God looks at you. As well as a man in love. A woman in love. So he doesn't notice any of the blemishes. She's been out in the field. She, she may have, you know, hands that have dug ditches. <laughs> we don't know. Leave it to one's imagination. But he's listing her beautiful attributes. And uh, he goes from top down. And interestingly, this inventory, this list of praising physical attributes is only one of four in the song. So three of the four are the man praising the woman. And that's interesting, isn't it? That man appreciating the physical beauty. And one of the four lists is from the woman in chapter five. But this particular list, this inventory, goes from eyes to hair to teeth to lips to cheeks to neck and to breasts. Her complete beauty to him. These are her physical attributes. And one thing we must do is just keep our... Um, tuned into a Middle East understanding of the analogies that were used. You've probably talked about this before because you need to go back to the Middle East, back 3,000 years, because actually if you've ever seen uh, a flock of goats running down a hillside, and I've been lucky enough to see that out in the Hajar Mountains between Dubai and Oman, there are wild goat uh, herds. Uh, Well, actually, they're they're not wild. They are all owned by uh, goat herds. And I've been lucky enough to see maybe 40 or 50 goats come all together, like sheep move together in a big, big flock. Goats often do the same. So you'll, you'll get them all coming down the mountain together. And these, these goats have this most lustrous, rich, dark brown, shining, glossy coats. Fabulous. And as they are coming down the mountain, they're rippling, rippling and shimmering and moving. It's like wind on a cornfield you know what i'm saying and actually you know you might think hey my hair goats come on what's this about you know actually it's beautiful and he's in raptures about such metaphors these metaphors are very emotive and we are meant to feel what he feels and it's ever so important that you understand how the bridegroom feels about the bride he's excited He's passionate because unless you really get this on a human level, it's not that easy to get the idea of this ethereal spirit level loving you like this earthy, amazing stuff, which is kind of, you know, packs a punch, doesn't it? Do you see my point? We need to understand the visceral gut level sense of excitement that, that the bridegroom feels about the bride. She's made in the image of God. Her body is made in the image of God. And um, let me just try and just hit you between the eyes. God has a blind love for you. So let me back that up with a scripture. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is talking about marriage. It's a famous passage. We often read it about weddings the mystery of marriage, and then he refers to the love between a man and a woman as between Christ and the church. And then he goes on to say this in Ephesians 5. He says, through Christ's own love for her, he will present the church to himself without 
a blemish or wrinkle. She is holy without blemish or wrinkle. So there is a sense in which when God's looking at you, 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 me, this morning, there is not a blemish in sight. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that freeing? That's how he thinks about you. Um, The last words of Jesus on the cross, translated into Latin, are perfectus est. It is finished. Now, we often think that if someone is perfect, it means that they're drop-dead gorgeous, they're amazing, they're handsome, beautiful, whatever. But actually, that's not what perfect means. Perfect just means finished. So in other words, you, as far as God's concerned, are the finished article. In Christ's righteousness, you are perfect. So you've got to start living that way. And I think if you want your cake and eat it, you can have it. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 says this, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect all those who are being made holy. You can have your cake and eat it. You know you're a mess. I know I'm a mess. But hey, when he looks at me, there's no flaw in you, my beloved. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Oh, Jesus, I just feel your love coming on me. Come on, let's just stop for a minute. Just let him say that to you right now. There's no flaw in you. You came here lugging these flaws to this meeting, didn't you? Oh, God, I'm so ashamed of that. I'm sick of tripping up in that area. Why do I keep even that low opinion of myself there? Why do I struggle here? There is no flaw in you, my beloved. Now, he knows that you're a work in progress, but that's not the way he treats you. And this is the lover praising his wife. And we need to understand this is deep, deep theology here. And um, now we need to press through to the end of this chapter because we need to we need to treat the word of God with honesty and openness. So let's explore what's actually going on in chapter four. The second half of chapter four is uh, chapter four is pretty straightforward. If you've got your Bibles open, you'll notice that verses one to seven He praises her beauty. Verses 8 to 9, he invites her, come away with me. He invites her into intimacy. Verses 10 to 15, he is complimenting her on her lovemaking. How delightful is your love? He's complimenting her. They're really enjoying each other. Verse 16 she invites him into complete consummation, into complete intimacy, into sexual union. And the thing that I think is so funny in the end of chapter 5, verse 1, is that the friends must be at a discreet distance, surely. They're going, whoa, way to go. Eat, oh, friends, and drink. Drink your fill, oh, lovers, you know. But actually that, that ennobles and dignifies and makes sacred and innocent the act of sexual union. Because actually, although they're not in the bridal chamber... There's a, I've got nothing to be ashamed of. This is just a beautiful openness. They were together, they were naked and unashamed. So, whoa, way to go, guys. You know, it's like, remember when I was here a few weeks ago, I said that in French wedding ceremonies, the wedding party bust in on the, on the bride and groom. If you were not here, they break into, well, they break in, they knock on the door and burst into the bride and groom's uh, morning after the night of passion. They sit on the bed and make them drink champagne out of a chamber pot. That's a French tradition, okay? Uh, You may not want that at your wedding, but uh, that's a French thing. And um, But here you've got friends enjoying the innocence and the beauty of this sacred union. 
And so somehow there's something very public about this sexual act, but public to teach us something far, far deeper than just a physical joining of two bodies. Sexual union is at the end of this chapter, and some, some theologian or commentator counted the verses from the beginning of the Song of Songs to the end. And did you know there are 111 verses from about chapter 1, verse 2, till the last chapter, end of 8. So we, there's 111 to this point at um, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And, and there's 111 to the end of the book. So in other words, I, I can't say it any other way. The sexual act is at the epicentre of the Song of Songs. So we're going to deal with that. And we're going to love what it's telling us. This is sacred ground. I'm going to take my shoes off in a minute. This is beautiful. This is, I mean, the Bible is just knockout literature, isn't it? What's, okay, let's try and unpack that. Sorry, I'm, I'm running out of words. So the sexual union is at the heart of the song. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. That's describing the act. Bride and sister. So this is deep family union. This has got overtones of family. My sister, my bride. This is beautiful. This isn't. This is again part of a bigger community of people. This act is owned within a beautiful belonging amongst. You know, we. If you're going to get married in a few months' time, we're going to rejoice with you. Uh, we, we are not going to, you know, going to bust in with the chamber pot full of champagne the next day. But we're going to. It's going to be something that we own with you because it's joy and wonder and glory. And uh, do you know? Do you know the blues guitarist John Mayer? I quite like it. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? John Mayer's done a lot of albums. And one of his albums has a song in it called Your Body is a Wonderland. Do you know that song? It's a quite a catchy song. It's, it's, it's all right. It's not, you know, I, I'm, I know I'm on the microphone. It's okay. The song's all right. <laughs> Your Body is a Wonderland. And do you know what? There are echo. I don't know whether John Mayer was reading Song of Songs chapter four, because actually... The, the bridegroom is saying this. He's saying, where are we? Um, uh, oh, lost it. Um, this is so, such an exciting chapter. Where are we? Oh, here we are. Um, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. What does that remind you of? The promised land. Milk and honey. Her body is the promised land to her lover, her husband. And... And you start to realise this, is, this has got huge application. That as you take away the layers of understanding of this, that, that um, she's not just his place of pleasure. She, her body is not just his wonderland. Somehow her body is reminiscent of the promised land, which is the place where God dwells, where we're all headed. We are headed to the promised land at the moment. It's being fought over in a, in a very contested part of uh, the Middle East. But one day, that which is now called the Holy Land will have such a huge application as the promised land. We are heading into that. In other words, we are going into God. And while he's worship, you know, that Anglican line in the marriage service, with my body, I thee worship. Do you know that line? You know, to have and to hold from this day forth for better or worse, rich and poor, with my body, I thee worship. He's worshipping her with his body. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? He's revering her, cherishing her, nourishing her. And it's so much bigger than just him and her. It's not 
just about you and me, babe. This is something far, far bigger. This is about that word that I mentioned at the beginning, consummation. Okay, in chapter four, there's an act of mutual passion, possession, submission, one to the other. The giving of self totally. Once you've committed to this path, there ain't no going back. This is, there's nothing more you can give. I give my total self to you. You give your total self to me. And in a way, when you look at honeycomb and honey, wine and milk, it's like you're saying you eat me up. You drink me in. You become a part of me and I become a part of you. Total unity. Now, this is an, the sexual act here is an, a metaphor for something even greater than what we might think is probably the most profound and intimate thing that human beings can do. Let me, let me read a quote. This comes from Charlie Cleverley's book. From Spur, Cleverley is quoting Spurgeon. I don't know how to preach on this subject, says Spurgeon. Well, if Spurgeon didn't know how to preach on it, we're all in trouble. Who can? Is this even a subject for a mixed assembly, says Spurgeon. And then he says this. I beg you, O believers, let this choice subject saturate willing minds. He has brought you into a condition of the utmost conceivable nearness to himself. He has participated in your nature, flesh and blood. And in so many words, he, Jesus, says to you, I will betroth you to me forever and you shall know the Lord. And Spurgeon ends like this. Can you grasp that? It will make your heart dance for joy if you can. And that's my prayer for you this morning. Your heart dances for joy that when you unpack this extraordinary chapter, you realise that it goes beyond that which we can experience on earth. And it is one day going to be better than your best night of passion. Now, let's move on to that. Let's go to the crescendo. And before I go there, you know, there's nothing... I mean, dirty, lewd imagery, smuttiness. I mean, it's a million, million miles from that. And yet we're talking about the most intimate things, aren't we? Let's go to the final application, the crescendo. This astonishing chapter four culminates in the act of love, but it's pointing to something much more beautiful, even than sex in a loving marriage. Because, I need to say this, the sex is not the be-all and the end-all. There is an ultimate union ahead for you and me that, that beats your best memories and activities. What does sexual intimacy give? It gives comfort. It gives unity between two parties. It gives babies. We may say that. It helps against temptation. It gives pleasure. But it also creates a longing. And there is a hunger to recommit again, to, to be again with your loved one. And it causes a longing in your heart to be with the loved one. It's a bit like wanting to go to the promised land. There's something beyond us. And I don't think I've got time today to, um, to go into any um, great length about this beautiful essay by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. But he talks about longings. 
and longings we've all got. And he talks about hearing a beautiful melody and want, oh, what was that gorgeous melody? And it reminds you of a longing that you want something beyond the tune. Or you get a fragrance of a flower and you think, man, that's a beautiful smell. It reminds me of something else. And, and if you worship the, the flower, you turn it into an idol. If you worship music for music's sake, you idolize music. But if you allow the beauty that comes through the flower or through the woman's or the man's body or through the music or whatever it is that is beautiful to you, through the sunset, if you don't, if you if you take the message that's come from beyond that experience, you're going ultimately to where we're all headed, to God himself. You with me? So all your longings are God given and your longings to commit in love to someone are God-given longings, but there's more, there's more than that. So, and if you like, this is a signpost to God himself. Now, you and I have not yet met Jesus in person. Man, what is that day going to be like? Well, I've not yet seen his face. Maybe you have in a dream, I don't know. Maybe you've Maybe you've had an experience that I haven't had. I haven't actually yet seen Jesus. But when I have that encounter with the glorious Jesus, what is, what is going to happen? You read Revelation chapter 1, where his eyes are like fire and his voice is like the sound of rushing waters. And John falls flat, at his, flat in his, on his face in front of Jesus. He can't stand. Such is the glory of the face of Jesus. He cannot look up. That's going to be me one day and you. And it's that word consummation. Consummation. There's consummation in a marriage. And actually, you're not technically married in many legal systems until you've actually had a consummation. So if, 